Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. On today's show, we will be joined by Grover Norquist, the President of Americans for Tax Reform. We'll be discussing a whole host of different issues. His political background, which is pretty extensive, has been involved in a lot over a long span, uh, tax reforms and some of his ideas and what he's worked on and, and continues to work on in regard to shaping that, and some other issues that he's also had involvement with. So we'll talk to you. Hey, Grover Collie. Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, get right into it. I uh, gave an introduction before brought you on. Uh, well, I read that you were 11 or 12 when you first volunteered for the Nixon campaign. What inspired you to be interested in conservative politics and get involved in such an early age? Uh, well, I think parents were generic Republicans uh, and discussed politics. Uh I was paying attention to the news. This was Vietnam War time. Uh, and when I was in uh, at Weston, town of Weston, uh, I went to the public library, which was run by Bolsheviks, and they were selling off all of the old, tired, unimportant, unuseful, uninteresting books, like Witness by Whitaker Chambers for a quarter. And I led three lives. Um, by Herb Philbrick, who was a uh, communist who switched teams and went to work while working with the Communist Party of the United States uh, and had cell meetings in my hometown of Weston uh, and Masters of Deceit by uh, the uh, Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover. So I was reading all the anti-communist uh, books uh, saying to myself, you know, I don't see this in the newspapers. I don't hear this from the guys on TV. Uh, my grandmother uh, sent me every month. I think she sent up to the whole family. I read them. Uh, the four weekly uh, magazines from Human Events. Uh, and again, you'd read this stuff and you go, that's not on TV. How does this happen? That, <laughs> that you know, These things happen and they're not really highlighted because this seems pretty important to me. Uh, so I was a foreign policy conservative. I was an uh, anti-Soviet, uh, anti-communist. Uh, and, you know, at some point you begin to realize that, you know, communism where they have complete economic control is very bad. And then you go, you know, partial economic control. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, piecemeal servitude sucks also. Uh, and that's when I became uh, more of a libertarian, somebody who um, uh, saw that even democratically elected governments could violate people's rights and be abusive uh, and make the world a worse place. So that, that it didn't sense. take a vicious dictatorship to screw things up. It could be a well-meaning collection of busybodies um, that, that did this. And uh, so I was, I was a Reagan Republican by mid-70s, and uh, with a little cross sort of, well, Reagan uh, had a famous comment that he said, I believe the very heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. So I, I, I never saw the Reagan Republicanism and the small L libertarianism is, is anything other than uh, the same conversation. No, there's definitely a, a ton of overlap. 
Uh, continuing a bit on the line of your work with anti-communism, I didn't realize how active you were in supporting some of these movements around the world uh, towards the end of the Cold War. What can you tell us about the work you did in some of those countries supporting uh, some of these different groups? Yeah, uh, during the uh, Reagan years, uh, the United States supported uh, UNITA, which was a uh, anti-communist, anti-Soviet uh, movement in Angola. Uh, the Cubans had taken over Angola and the communists, uh, the MPLA, uh, Angolan communists and the Cuban communists had taken over uh, an oil-rich country. Uh, and UNITA uh, controlled a fair amount of territory. They probably had 70-plus percent of the population uh, tribally, ethnically. Uh, and uh, the United States was slow in getting behind uh, UNITA, uh, but did. Uh, got them Stinger missiles. They shot down 70, 80 uh, Soviet planes and helicopters at the same time that uh, we armed the Afghans. So I worked in building support domestically and then spent some time overseas uh, with the uh, uh, resistance movements. I helped organize a meeting uh, in the mid-60s uh, in Angola uh, with the uh, Mujahideen from Afghanistan, with the Laotian anti-communists, uh, uh, with uh, folks from, uh, from uh, Nicaragua, uh, and uh, Cambodia and Laos. Uh, so you had opposition groups um, that were fighting against uh, Soviet imperialism, they put together a joint statement uh, in opposition to modern imperialism as opposed to European imperialism, 1900, uh, period 1900s, 1960. There was a new Soviet imperialism that was uh, important to defeat. Uh, the groups all recognized that they fought the same enemy, uh, and they weren't just scattered. Oh, isn't that weird? You know, there's, the, there's a resistance in Mozambique, and there's a resistance in... Um, uh, Nicaragua and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, Angola, but actually they were all of a, uh, they were similar fights, uh, and they should support each other, and the United States should support each of them. And this is one where I think the United States did well. Unlike Vietnam, you know, we didn't send 500,000 troops into Angola or Mozambique or Afghanistan. Uh, instead, we supported the indigenous population's uh, efforts to expel the Soviets. And the Soviets, uh, you know, we, I think they knocked down 300 Soviet planes and helicopters in Afghanistan. That is a lot of value. I mean, the, the cost to the Soviets of losing helicopters and planes, probably more importantly, the cost of trained pilots, um, made the occupation of Afghanistan untenable. Uh, and the same thing largely began to happen in uh, the other uh, countries as well. So that was a important part of, I mean, Reagan did a couple of things. He put pressure on the Europeans to stop loaning money to the Soviet Union, and the Eastern Bloc. Um, you'd think that'd be an easier thing to explain, but the Germans were busy lending money to the East Germans and then the East Germans would buy somebody, something from West Germany, and then the West Germans would go, oh, we're getting rich. You know, <laughs> you're, buying the money, you're buying it yourself. It's just that what you were selling goes to East Germany, not to, not to, uh, to you. Uh, 
Thatcher wanted to build that pipeline to bring oil and natural gas into Russia, which into uh, Europe, which would make Europe more dependent on uh, on Russia. Big mistake, very unfortunate. Uh, she was very mad at Reagan for opposing that bad idea, uh, but when Reagan was right, and Thatcher was wrong. Uh, hmm. So there was a, it was a very interesting time where, with a little support, I mean, we got resolutions. One of the things I worked on was a resolution, Sims resolution, saying that we would not stop supporting and arming the Mujahideen, the Afghan resistance, until the last Soviet had left Afghanistan. What the Soviets were hoping for was that they would agree, we'd agree to cut off our uh, the, the, the opposition from arms, then while they were cut off, the Soviets would begin this very, you know, multi-year staged effort for, for promising to leave, but really using that time to, you know, once the supplies weren't coming in, to cut down the, um, uh, the Afghans and to kill their opportunity to rebuild their supply lines. Um, and that resolution was almost unanimous. This, this was what they were looking to do. We had every reason to believe that that was the, exactly the plan because they, the, some of the administration people who were not Reaganites themselves over at State Department, they really, really, really wanted to sort of claim victory and, uh, and abandon the Mujahideen. And... So that was that. That all worked out well. The Soviet Union, uh, and then I went into Eastern Europe before the wall came down. Uh, there were meetings of the opposition. You'd think you couldn't do this in a communist country, but they were not exactly uh, functioning on as well as they used to. And there was a little dictatorship over there. Uh, all the various uh, occupied uh, states: uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Armenia, Uzbekistan, all these places. Uh, and they met in Czechoslovakia. Uh, so I went in for that meeting. It was quite good. Then I, I did a project where we were helping the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis who are in conflict now with each other because they steal each other's land or something. Um, but at the time, the Soviets were trying to stir up animosity between those two and announced that they were going to stay in that region with their troops in order to keep the Azerbaijanis from being mean to the Afghan, uh, to the uh, Armenians. And the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis did a joint letter, which I helped publicize, a uh, st joint statement. And that was, yes, uh, and uh, that uh, the, the statement was, look, guys, um, we have our conflicts. We'll sort them out. Russia is trying to use this to continue the occupation. Don't buy their argument. So, and that was pretty impressive because these, the two do have very real conflicts uh, to this day. Uh, and but they both wanted to be independent of the Soviet occupation. So it was very. It was a time where there was a lot of uh, exciting stuff going on, and you could make a difference. Is is one person I worked with. I, I traveled to Angola quite a bit, uh, met with UNITA and Angola, uh, with, with Zavimbi, rather, who is the, the head of UNITA. Um, wrote an article with him for the Wall Street Journal. 
uh, wrote a piece under my name. No, no, under Zavindi's name. I mean, I, I sat with him and then I wrote it and he approved it, but, but I ghosted it, I guess. Um, that was a very long piece in Policy Review, the Heritage Quarterly that uh, used to exist. Uh, and that helped get the word out. Um, and I think it was part of what allowed them to get the Stinger missiles they needed to get the Cuban Air Force to back off. Well, so uh, sounds like it was an interesting time that you were involved in. So uh, on, on that note, you also had some interaction with President Reagan. I'm curious, how much did you actually get to speak to him and, and get to know him? And how did meeting him lead to you founding ATR? Well, the president and the White House set up Americans for Tax Reform, so they actually founded it. Uh, they got donors to it. They wrote up the uh, board of directors, rules, and uh, so on. Uh, and then they asked me if I would run it. I used to run the National Taxpayers Union when I got out of college. And so I had a, su a successful reputation, an example of, of running a uh, tax group, uh, and had worked with the Chamber of Commerce for a few years on tax issues. So uh, when they asked me to run Americans for Tax Reform, which was to be the outside grassroots lobby for the Tax Reform Act of 1986, I said, absolutely, I think it's a very good idea. I'd love to do it, and I did. While we were running that campaign, uh, I created the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, uh, and the reason for that was twofold. One, there were a lot of people who worried that if we reduced marginal tax rates and uh, that we... Um, broaden the base by eliminating deductions and credits, so it's revenue neutral, that protections that people had put in against too high tax rates would, in fact, be gone. The rates would come down, and then over time, the rates would go back up again. How do you protect against that? How do you explain to Republicans that that's not definitely going to happen, that there's a way to avoid that? So I created the pledge, and the pledge was something that people promised to the people in their state, and to their um, people in their state and to uh, the American people that they will oppose and vote against all efforts to raise taxes, any net tax increase. Uh, I got 100 members of the House, 20 in the Senate that year, 1985-86. Uh, it became an issue in campaigns. Uh, the Democrats got so mad they sued me over it, saying you can't do that, that's cheating. Everybody knows the right answer is to oppose all tax increases. I'm, I'm thinking... If everybody knows it, <laughs> why don't you um, act like you know it and oppose tax increases? No, no. Mm. We know it's the right answer, but we don't want to do it, uh, which is kind of cute. Uh, mm. So that went well. Uh, then in 88, we got many more people to take the pledge. All the presidential candidates, with the exception of Bob Dole, took the pledge. Uh, it probably cost Bob Dole. Uh, the nomination because he was was going to take the uh, didn't take the pledge but was asked to take the pledge uh, by uh, Pete Dupont um, in the, the debate just before the New Hampshire uh, primary and as a result uh, he said no on TV a day or two before the New Hampshire primary and he was supposed to win and he lost 
and that's mm-hmm. when Bush took the lead and never fell back. Uh, so you saw take the pledge, win the primary. Then, remember, Bush was losing by 14 points uh, in the early summer of 19... Oh, dear. Uh, 1988 to Dukakis. He was behind Dukakis. 14 points. Dukakis was going to be president. Uh, and then he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And all of this, which was the way of saying, I am going to govern as Reagan. I will govern as Reagan. Uh, and having made that comment, he then won by about eight points. So take the pledge, uh, win the primary. Take the pledge, win the general. Then he made a mistake. Here, here was Bush, who, by 1992, when he was running for re-election, he had managed the collapse of the Soviet Union. If you can imagine this, you know, think back 10, 20, 30 years. People, those who thought we'd win the Cold War, assumed it was going to include massive losses, right? <laughs> People were going to die in large numbers in defeating the Soviet Union, that, that there, was, there could be a nuclear war. How are they going to go away without a nuclear war, right? Mm-hmm. They had nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of negotiating a deal in Europe, the, they had always offered, you know, they would pull back a bit if we got a neutral Germany. So they were willing to give us East Germany if it neutralized all of Germany, which meant they could run their tanks halfway to Paris. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, with you know, no opposition because you'd have a neutral, uh, demilitarized Germany. Um, yeah, it would have been a disaster, but you can imagine the French and the Europeans and the American left going, oh, wow, what a wonderful thing it is to, to have this kind of uh, peace agreement. Well, we got an end to the Warsaw Pact and a Germany inside NATO. That was the thing that could not happen. Bush helped to make that happen. Bush then, um, he wasn't for Ukrainian independence, but at the end of the day, he didn't mess it up. Crane out of Russia, which means 50, 50 million people gone out of the 300 million person Soviet Union. It's a huge chunk. Uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, can't threaten the world without Ukraine in the way that it can with. Uh, so he managed the collapse of the Soviet Union. He kicked the Iraqi army out of Kuwait and didn't get stuck occupying the place for half a century or whatever it is we've been doing. Um, he went in, whacked the guy in the head, said, don't make us come back, and left. Uh, hmm. And it worked brilliantly. And then he raised taxes, and he got thrown out of office. On his tombstone and in his obituary, it will lead with the guy who lied his way into office and raised taxes, um, you know, passed away today. This, that didn't have to happen. But what it tells you is that the tax issue is so powerful that when you lie to people about that and betray them on that, they don't hear or see or care that you also ended the Cold War and avoided getting the United States mired down in Iraq while kicking Iraq out of the American ally that they were occupying, the, the um, uh, the, the Kuwaitis, um, these were monumental successes that Bush had. And he will be remembered as the guy who raised taxes. Okay? So from that, two years later in 94, 98% of all the Republicans for office took the pledge, and we haven't had a Republican um, raise taxes, vote to raise taxes in Washington, D.C. 
since 1990 when Bush talked a bunch of people into it. None of those people are alive or still in Congress. Uh, so we have flushed the system out of all Republicans willing to raise taxes. Uh, the Democrats' number one goal in life is to talk Republicans into raising taxes because then they can crush them as they did Bush. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they sit there and tell you, I'll still respect you in the morning. But so far, the Republicans have been wise enough to uh, avoid falling for that line. Mm -hmm. No, they trapped him back then and he fell for it. It was obviously a disaster, yeah. like you said. Yeah. So the U.S. survived for a long time without any federal income tax at all. So how did we get to the situation in government where it's so heavily dependent on that today when they were able to run just fine with that in the past? Uh, well, several things happened. First of all, the prohibitionists wanted to play nanny state um, and tell people they couldn't drink beer or wine or liquor. And since a good chunk of the federal government's uh, tax uh, income were excise taxes on beer, wine, and spirits, uh, you had to replace it with something. Then people also hated the tariffs. I mean, we were supported by taxes, excise taxes on spirits and liquor and tariffs, and for quite some time, for the first hundred years of our existence, the sale of the federal land. Um, and so they wanted to ban liquor, so I guess that we won't be raising any tax money on that, uh, so we better do something. And the South very much wanted to reduce the tariffs because the tariffs were set up to screw the South particularly. Uh, they're, they're thoroughly politicized. Um, and people hated the tariffs because tariffs are taxes. I don't know why they thought the income. Oh, and they also believed the income tax would only be on the top people who made more than like $10 million or uh, some ridiculous amount of money. Uh, and the top rate was 7%, and I think you had you certainly had to make more than a million dollars a year in order to qualify, to 11 million in today's terms. Uh, so it was only going to be taxed on rich people, and it was going to replace these the tariffs and the, the beer and liquor stuff. Uh, when prohibition ended, we went back to taxing beer, spirits, wine, uh, and tariffs are still with us, and we have an income tax. And the income tax, every time there's a war, it becomes much bigger. Uh, it, during World War II, it became a mass tax on just about everybody. Uh, and it, be, it, it never went away. So uh, we got tricked into it. Uh, they didn't permanently cut other taxes. This was not a replacement tax. This was a in-addition tax, as you'd think people could have been smart enough to see. Uh, alongside the fact that the income tax became this thing that grew like topsy, the federal government, half of the present federal government, was created in two two-year periods, so four years total. There wasn't some sort of vote year after year after year and people saying, we should go to the government, we should go to the government, we should go to the government, where there was this massive support for the idea of going to government. Uh, from 34 to 36, the New Deal, they created a series of programs, Social Security, uh, from 64 to 66. The, the four years where there were super majorities of Democrats, House, Senate, Democrat, President, um, under Lyndon Johnson and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and you created programs, entitlements that then grew to consume 10% of the economy. 
federal government absorbs 20% of the economy. This absorbs 10% of the economy. Those the tax the, the the entitlements created in those four years. So had we not uh, made those decisions, federal government would be half of what it is. Federal taxes could be half of what they are. Um, you don't need an income tax. There are nine states that don't have state income taxes. Although I think if you talk to New York or, or uh, California or Illinois, they go, oh, you couldn't abolish the income tax? That's ridiculous. Well, Florida doesn't have one, and Florida's doing quite fine. Texas doesn't have one, and Texas is doing quite fine. Uh, Washington State, they don't have oil and they don't have sun. They don't have an income tax. South Dakota doesn't have an income tax. Wyoming doesn't have an income tax. New Hampshire doesn't have an income tax. So it's not a question of, of you know, some odd states. Uh, Alaska doesn't have an income tax. But uh, Tennessee doesn't have an income tax and doesn't have oil or weather uh, like Florida does. So uh, I think we're going to see more states move to abolish their state income tax. Uh, North Carolina is halfway to getting rid of their income tax. A uh, number of states are looking to do something very similar. So I think as we get more states to abolish their income taxes, we can explain to people, you don't have to have a federal income tax necessarily. Let's keep taking it down and see if we can do without it. Makes sense. So let's say it was up to you and you had ultimate power over all financial decisions in the country. How would you change our tax policy to be most efficient and at the same time get us back to a balanced budget, which obviously we are way off from having? Well, first thing you have to do is... Uh, look at the entitlements, and block grant all the welfare programs. There are 185 different welfare programs, like food stamps and subsidized housing, things where you get money not because you paid into something or did any work, like had a job. You did it because, because you're poor, and they give you money. Um, Medicaid. Uh, so we need to take those, block grant them, as we did with Bill Clinton on Aid to Families with Dependent Children, now called TANF. Uh, and we block grant it out to the 50 states, and then 50 states each said, well, how can we help poor people uh, without killing their incentives to work? How can we help poor people and focus on the people who actually need it, not uh, people who are scamming the system? And we had dramatic savings. Some had 30 and 40% drop in how much they spent, the states. And they got money from the feds, you know, in a block grant. We should do the same thing with all the means-tested programs, block grant them all. Um, and as soon as you have that, uh, then, and, oh, and, they, and the block grant only grows with inflation, not more than inflation. So that alone would dramatically reduce the drivers on economic growth, on, on, on growth of government. And as for taxes, I would support taking the present income tax to a single rate that taxes income one time at one rate. So you'd say to everybody, everybody pays 10% or 15% or some number. Uh, to, I mean, to get there, you probably have to go from, you know, seven brackets down to two and then from two down to one. Uh, doesn't happen overnight. But if you get to one rate, I'm originally from Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts, like Illinois, like a number of other states, has a, uh, constitutional requirement of a single rate, so you can't have a graduated rate. Uh, and Massachusetts, five times the left is put on the ballot. Let's get rid of the uh, single rate. Let's go to a graduated progressive income tax. Five times the liberal Democrats 
in Massachusetts have voted down the idea of a progressive income tax. The thing they tell you in school that everybody agrees on, you know, Karl Marx's idea that you can divide the population into little pieces and tax them one at a time. Uh, and of course, if you divide people into five, ten different groups and have different marginal tax rates, you can say, okay, today we're going to raise the top rate and come back and say, today we're going to raise the second of the top rate, and then the guys in the top go, well, I don't care. That's not me. Over time, the rates get up for everybody. So a single rate tax, it's not so much that it's fair because taxation is taking money from people who earned it and giving it to people who didn't necessarily earn it. Um, there's no fairness involved in taxation. But if you have a single rate, it means when the government says, I've got this great idea, and you're all going to pay for it. Then people look up and go, we're all listening. It better be a really great idea. Uh, <laughs> and in Massachusetts, uh, their rate's about five and a quarter now, a lot less than other states that are more Democrat, more left. That are, they're, everybody's Democrat left-wing is Massachusetts. But hmm. in Massachusetts, you want to raise the income tax, you hit everybody in the state in the face, and they're all paying attention. And so politicians tend not to push that tax up. DIA, I don't think, is really brought up by many people. What would you think of an approach of eliminating income taxes altogether and having some sort of a progressive consumption tax? That way you're punishing people for using resources and spending as opposed to for earning it. Yeah, I'm opposed to progressive um, sales tax or income tax. I think it allows, allows you to divide people into groups and mug us one at a time. So um, the difference between the sales tax and a income taxes, whether the government steals your money out of your left pocket or your right pocket. Do they take money from you when you buy something? Do they take money from you when you get a paycheck? Uh, economists will tell you it doesn't matter. It's all the same. Um, now, you can make a income tax, a consumption tax, simply by not taxing savings and investment. You know, how much you make? I made $100. How much you save? I saved $90 in the bank. What's, re what's left? Well, 90, so you pay tax on the 90. And when you spend your savings, then you're, um, they add back, get back up, but not when you're saving them. Uh, so I don't think we need to go to a new tax, like a value-added tax or a retail sales tax. The challenge there is whenever other countries have put high sales taxes on, eventually it has to become a value-added tax where you're taxing at every level of production because if you have a 15 or 10 or 15% sales tax on goods, then everybody would shop out of the back of trucks down the street from Walmart. Um, hmm. You would you, you'd sell stuff out the back of the store, not through the store because the, the rate's so high. But a value-added tax, you pay taxes at every level of production. It's self-policing. It's easier for the tax collectors, which is why they like it. Uh, but I think a value-added tax is the goal of the modern Democratic Party. Their goal is to have a heavy tax on middle-income Americans. Oh, we're really going to go after the rich guys. You'll love this. We're going to go after the rich guys. Um, and then you're supposed to not notice that they're cutting off two of your fingers because they're advertising that they're cutting off three of the other guy's fingers. And that is an unhealthy thing, this, this uh, 
play for um, envy uh, among the American people. Not very successful in the United States, but more successful than I'd like it to be. No, a value-added tax or anything like that I think is definitely a negative. Um, You brought up a little while ago tariffs, too, and that's something which I don't like. It seems to be coming back into favor, some sort of economic protectionism. What do you think about all these tariffs being employed? Because I think that the U.S. can win in the free market without that, and it only causes more harm than good overall. No, it does cause more harm than good. Tariffs are just another word for taxes. They're taxes at the border. A tariff on French perfume is not paid by French people. It's not paid by French customers. It's paid by Americans who consume French distorts uh, consumer demand. Uh, It fools people into thinking people want more or less of things that they don't because they're not getting prices. Prices is what Prices are not just what you pay for something. Prices are the information that a free market system needs to tell you, should we be making more pancakes? Well, the price of pancakes is going up. You should be making more because you can get rich doing it. If the price of pancakes is falling, people get out of the pancake business because there's not that much money in it. And if you subsidize something or tax it, it fools production and they think, oh, there's a lot of people like that. No, think subsidized. <laughs> Not a lot of people like it. That's why, that's why they have to subsidize it. Um, or if something's being taxed, people will buy less of it because they think the price has gone up. And that is a very, uh, very annoying uh, problem. Plus, you know, tariffs interfere with everything from, you know, how we have a more competitive world. Look, we're the United States of America. I, I understand why France likes tariffs. France is not competitive. Germany's even not as competitive as it could be. The United States is pretty darn competitive. Um, you know, look, are there real challenges on trade issues? China steals our intellectual property. They, you know, buy one copy of uh, Microsoft's, uh, you know, Windows and then <laughs> make 700 billion copies of it. Uh, they're not. You know, other countries take our pharmaceutical uh, inventions and uh, with price controls buy it for less uh, so that we don't, aren't able to invest more in uh, looking for new uh, cures. The rest of the world doesn't have an industry like that. Uh, and, you know, I'm sorry, but these other countries are not really creating life-saving drugs, the United States is. So uh, I, I think it's, I understand the frustration for years, it was Japan, then it was China. Um, and several things happen. You know, up-and-coming countries cheat on the way up because they don't think they can compete otherwise. Uh, it's very annoying, and we need to fix it. Uh, and uh, the sooner the better. Uh, but tariffs are a bad tool for getting to free trade. You know, I like baseball bats, but you can't you can't do appendectomies with them. Right. Oh, I agree. Um, so finally, I know you host a pretty prominent Wednesday meeting every week. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? And do you have anything else sure. interesting in the pipeline? Sure. Uh, Wednesday meeting started in January, February of 1993. Bill Clinton gets elected president. We're terrified he's going to do Obamacare. We're trying to figure out how to fight that. 
we set up a working group of about 20 people from business groups, uh, think tanks, activist groups, uh, and we got together once a week. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then we realized if you're going to stop, you had to actually stop, um, slow the whole agenda down, the whole budget, the gun control, the taxes, everything. Uh, and so uh, we got more and more people joined. So we, it grew to a 40-person meeting. Uh, by 1994, uh, that election cycle. We had the head of the Republican Party there on a regular basis. We had guys from the House and the Senate. Uh, and the point of the, the, what made this meeting different than other meetings, uh, and part of it was on purpose and part of it we just learned dumb luck. Um, you can talk for three minutes. If you have more than that to say, you can write it down and pass it out. That's fine. Nobody talks for more than three minutes. That includes congressmen and senators. Uh, partially so that nobody gets bored. Um, or, you know, because not everybody's going to... We have 30 presentations in a 90-minute meeting. 30, okay? Wow. So if one or two of them are not something you work on, you know, we have people from other countries come and present. Here's what's happening in London. Well, what if you didn't particularly care what's happening in the British government? Well, for three minutes, you can learn. And, okay... I'm interested enough to know. I wouldn't read a book on the subject, maybe, but that's okay. Good to know that that's happening. Three minutes is fine. Um, mm. You're only allowed to talk about what you're doing. You're not allowed to talk about what your ridiculous hopes and aspirations are. You're not allowed to talk about what somebody else should do. Or, you know, the president really screwed up this week. Yes, thank you very much. Um, you know, or the president should do this. Well, if you have a plan to get him to do that, that's not a waste of time. That would be interesting. Tell us about that. But if you're just telling us, I wish the president would do X, what's that have to do with the price of beans? Um, so you're only allowed to talk about what you're doing. It's got to be forward-looking. No arguing with anybody else. No whining. Um, no personal criticisms. Uh, and no votes. There isn't some... Everybody in the room is center-right. They're all Reagan Republicans, or they would have been if they were the right age to vote for Reagan. Um, but we have the gay Republicans and the traditional values Republicans. We have people from the Jewish community, the Muslim community, the Hindu community, the various Christian communities uh, who represent their constituencies and work with them. The Asian American Hotel Association, which is Indian Americans who own hotels, about half. Till the tears run down from my eyes, Lord, somebody, ooh, somebody, can anybody find me? over the conservative movement. And uh, so, among other things, the pro-lifers
Great. Well, um, that sounds fantastic. And you know, once again, thanks for coming on, and um, it was enjoyable talking to you. Good to be with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks. Bye.